Good morning. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So how many of you are familiar with the song that goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? A lot of us. But as strong as a statement as that is, even if it is a cutesy song, and it's true, how do we know that the Bible saying that makes it so? Because I grew up with that song. I grew up as a kid singing that song. And yet, that's a very, very good question. I grew up, hey, the Bible says Jesus loves me, so Jesus loves me. But how do I know, how do we know that the Bible is right when it says that? That's an important question. And questions are good. So what I'm going to try and do today is give a little bit of a foundation for understanding why the Bible is trustworthy, why the Bible is dependable, why when it says Jesus loves me or anything else, that we can trust it. I can't go through all of everything that will answer that question. The best I can do is I'm going to go through, I'm going to go through a few things that have meant a lot to me in the last few years as I've been studying. This is one of my favorite subjects. And I've had a lot of questions along the way. I can't answer all of yours, but I can answer some very common ones, and then hopefully that will give you enough motivation to go out and ask your own questions, find your own answers, do your own research, because I can't do all that. So first things first, we're gonna go a little bit into what is the Bible. So if you're not familiar, the Bible has 66 books, some of which are very long, some of which are very, very short, but they are all working together to proclaim God's truth to us. The books consist of books of history, of law, of poetry, of prophecy, of biography, such as the Gospels, and letters, or epistles, basically. Uh, letters written to various people in order to proclaim truth into their lives. It was written by roughly 40 writers, which among their ranks were kings, fishermen, priests, officials, farmers, shepherds, and doctors. Whew, for a second I thought I put a stray apostrophe in doctors and I panicked. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it's one of my pet peeves and I, okay, so it's written over the course of 1500 years, starting with Moses writing Genesis and then 1500 years later, John put the last ink in the book of Revelation. And despite it being written by 40 people over 1,500 years, it is unified in theme and in purpose. We'll get a little bit into what that purpose is. Well, hopefully we get a lot of it into what that purpose is. And overall, the main divisions of the Bible, uh, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all that means is that the Old Testament is, I guess this is a spoiler for later on in the message, but that's okay. The Old Testament is showing us, um, and particularly the people in the time it was written, that we need God and that we need a Savior. 
And then the New Testament reveals that Savior to us in every way. So there's your crash course. So through this, um, I'm going to be referring to the Bible. That's not to say I'm going to be saying, well, the Bible says it's true, therefore it is, because that would be a logical problem. But in order to really examine the Bible and see whether it is dependable, we have to look at the claims it makes about itself. Does that make sense? We are going to examine it from a, a logical outward viewpoint, but we have to examine the claims it makes about itself. So when I'm referring to it, that's what I'm doing. And one thing to remember as we're going through this, and, and this has been a big deal in my walk, is that questions are good as long as you follow through, as long as you follow them. You can have a question in your mind, and, and speaking as a person who likes to think I'm smart, having a question and questioning what someone is saying makes me feel smart. Like, oh, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. I, it makes us feel good when we think we know something that maybe others don't. That's human nature. And those questions are good, but if we just leave them at questions in our mind, they start to become our truth. But it's not honest. It's not intellectually honest with ourselves to just have a question, but not actually pursue the answer. So here's a quote. It's not a bad thing finding out you don't have all the answers. You start asking the right questions. It was Dr. Eric Selvig who said that. Um, he was from a movie. But I was watching this movie. Uh, Shocker was one of the Marvel movies. We're preparing to see Endgame, me and Amanda, my wife. But one of the characters said this, and I thought, gee, that's a really, really good quote. And the fact that it's in a movie doesn't diminish the fact that that is a very real thing. For me, uh, a little while ago, uh, I think last time I was up here, I talked about how I really struggled with being very self-centered, and it took Tom Kay and, over the course of time, a few others sitting down with me and showing me that for me to realize that. But what those confrontations did is they showed me how wrong I was. Because I can't really learn something until I know that I don't know something. Hopefully that made sense. All right, so I'm going to talk about where the Bible comes from, to a certain extent why it's trustworthy, depending on how much time I have, and then I'm going to talk about how, whether you, are, you already agree with me or maybe this helps you agree with me, what to do about it. How do you use the Word of God in your life effectively? So, let's look at 2 Peter here, what it says about the writing, the authorship of the Bible. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. Um, sorry, let me step out of the way here. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is one of the claims the Bible is making about itself, is that its words, more than just a message from a speaker up on this stage, its words come from the Spirit of God. And if something comes from God, it is completely, or should be, completely trustworthy. So, 
quoting this very famous person called everyone. The question, isn't the Bible disjointed and contradictory? We get that a lot. I've heard that a lot. Um, a phrase that often comes up in, in these kind of discussions is cherry picking. Christians get accused of cherry picking. Well, you know, you say this is wrong, but the Bible also says that mixing fabrics or eating pork is wrong. And the simple, really the simple answer to this objection, at least to the disjointed part, whether it's contradictory, is that the Bible is a series of progressive revelations. It's important to read the Bible in context, to look at every verse in context, and the way the Bible works, remember, Old Testament, our need for a savior. New Testament reveals that savior. What is said early on is often revealed and explained properly later. So if something seems contradictory, almost every, in every case, the simple resolution for that is that it simply explains something or reveals something that was said before, and it's not a contradiction. So as for whether it's contradictory, I can answer one of these. There are many, many, many times where people say, well, it says this in the Bible, it says that in the Bible, and those things don't line up. Uh, one example, and I picked it just because it's right in the very beginning, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have what people say is a, is a different account of creation. Where Genesis 1 says, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, uh, God created things in this order. And then in chapter 2, it goes back and says, well, God created man, 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 and then a little later on, he created woman. And people say, wait a minute, you know, it says that God created man and woman on day 6, so what's with that? Simple resolution. Genesis chapter 1 is a summary account of creation. Genesis chapter 2 is putting more focus on day 6, where God created Adam, some things happened, and then he created Eve. It's not contradictory, and I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to really break it down and graph it and everything like that, but it's, it's not contradictory. Please, go read it yourself. There's a summary, and then there's a more focused thing, because God is, frankly, far more interested, I think, in the creation of humankind, who he made in his own image, than he is in everything else. And the reason I, uh, the other reason I brought that one up is because I would hazard to say that most of the supposed contradictions in the Bible can be very easily resolved if you just understand that one of them is a summary and one of them is more detailed. There are all kinds of examples like that in the Gospels, for example. Something is summarized and then later it is put down in more detail. So that is in its writing. It was written by the hands of 40 people, but it was carried through and it is completely consistent because of the Spirit of God. And the fact that it is so internally consistent bears witness to that fact. So now we're going to go into why, why those 66 books? Why do we have those 66 books? Well, uh, Revelation 22 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if everyone adds, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. That is to say, 
the Bible was put, in, was put together very carefully because nobody who was doing it wanted to mess with this verse. So, this famous person, everyone, asked this question. And the reason I put that there is because I've asked this question. We've all heard this question and we've all had this question. The point of that is that these questions have been asked for thousands of years. We like, to, we like to think, at least I like to think when I come up with a question, that I'm the first one who's thought of it. But we haven't. We haven't. These questions have been asked and they've been answered. The answers are out there. Isn't it just what the rulers wanted to have printed? Those 66 books, but there might have been a whole bunch of others that they left out, right? Because they didn't like them. Well, the reason why the 66 book list exists is primarily not because at some point a bunch of people sat down and said, oh, these are the books that we agree with. Those books were actually, almost all of them, already understood by the church from the time they were written up until about 140 AD. Nobody really questioned these books because they were all written by apostles or by people who served the apostles. So it made sense. Okay, these have the authority of God. But the reason why they were officially listed or canonized, as the word goes, is because around 140 AD, this guy called Marcion started spreading this claim that the God of the Old Testament was an angry old deity and that Jesus was a new God who came along and started proclaiming love. And so he published a list of books of official, of official books of the Bible that cut out a lot of the Old Testament and cut out quite a bit of the New Testament that talked about, you know, judgment and such things. So as a response, the church decided we need to make sure that people have a clear list so that they know that this guy is wrong. So over the course of a few councils, they established what books were essentially already agreed upon. And they put them in that list simply so that people would know, okay, these are the books. And their criteria for that were very simple and completely logical. Their first criteria, their first criteria was authorship. Who wrote it? If it's an apostle or it's somebody who worked with an apostle and wrote in their authority, then it counts. After that, it was internal agreement. Does this book, which is supposedly the word of God, agree with what else we know of the word of God? If so, then of course, logically, it stays in. And then finally, it's effect. Has it, in the course of time, shown to have transformative power in the life of believers? If so, it was there. Now, people talk about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Acts of Nicodemus, a bunch of books which are supposedly left out because the people in charge didn't like them. But they were left out because they were obvious forgeries. Obvious, like written hundreds of years after Jesus, especially by the later time this list was canonized in the church. These books were obvious, obvious forgeries and had absolutely no claim to the authorship. Some of the books which were left out that people, some people said, oh, that one should be in there, specifically said in the letter, no, this is, a, I'm writing this, but I'm not writing this in the authority of God. Which, if someone says that, obviously you leave it out of the Bible. So that list of qualifications helped guide them in making sure that the list they already had made sense. But what ended up happening is, here's the Bible, 66 books, this reflects what is the word of God. And the list was officially closed, because at that point nobody was alive who had the authority to write. 
So, the Bible's transmission. Let's say, okay, the Bible is the Bible, it's what we have, it's what was meant to be there, but how do we know that what we have is correct? Well, the simple fact is that over the course of thousands of years, it's true the Bible was copied and copied and copied. And most of the time, we've had experience where we tell somebody a story, and then three people down the line, the story's completely different. So how do we know that the copies we have today are what were originally written? Sorry, that's the next one. Um, so, as quickly as I possibly can do. Um, the Old Testament was copied by teams of scribes who cross-checked, rechecked, double-checked their work and the work of their fellows to make sure that mistakes did not happen. And it, there, there's a whole lot that went into the ritual, there's a whole lot that went into the process that I really don't have time to get into, but I can tell you the effect of it was such that when we found what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may have heard of them, we had, from, we had at that point, um, sorry, before we found them, we had the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was from roughly 900 A.D. So huge difference in time between the first writing and that copy. And so some people said, well, how do we know that copy's correct? That's a lot, lot of time, a lot of copies to get to that point. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained scrolls that were from 200 or 300 BC, and is, which is much closer to the original writing and, and a difference in time there between the oldest we had and now the oldest we do have because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, about 1,700 years. Um, and the difference, for example, in Isaiah chapter 53 was 17 letters. And most of those were variations of spelling. That's miraculous, that over the course of more than a thousand years, the copies and copies and copies and copies have shown that the scribes were doing a really, really good job keeping their work consistent. Ah, uh, gotta rush through this. Okay, so it's spread. Couldn't the whole thing be a conspiracy, says everyone. The people who wrote it, the, the people who wrote the Gospels or the people who wrote the Old Testament, it's all a conspiracy. They just wrote what they wanted to write so that people would follow them. This is personally one of my favorite um, examples, I should say. It's, it's one of the things that shows to me the Bible is, is accurate and trustworthy. The Old Testament was written by people in the kingdom of Israel primarily in the time when there were terrible kings of Israel and they were heavily critical of those kings. In other words, they were writing something that put them in a very dangerous position because they were more interested in the truth than they were in making the rulers and the people around them look good. If you go to other ancient literature, that is not the case. Everybody talks about how amazing their murderous, terrible king is. The Old Testament does not do that. It's extremely critical of its people, its kings, and in many cases, the person who's writing it. Isaiah, for example, says of himself, I am a man of unclean lips when he is in a vision caught up into heaven. So these are people who are very honest about who they are in a way that other ancient literature simply is not. And the New Testament is likewise extremely critical. The people who wrote the Gospels, the uh, apostles, were dumb. They didn't get 
what Jesus was telling them. They made mistakes. They got angry. They completely misunderstood practically everything Jesus said. And I think uh, Tom K. talked about this. But the transformation that happened as a result of them meeting the risen Jesus highlights just how ridiculous they were before that. And again, people don't write that way about themselves unless they are more interested in the truth than they are in trying to make themselves look like great leaders. If they were trying to do that, my point is they failed. Okay, so there's so much so much more I could get into, but I hope that this at least kind of gives you a start where if you weren't sure where you were before with the Bible, with God, it gives you a start to say, I've got these questions, I'm going to follow them through. I'm going to go and do research because please do that. I, I did research and I continue to do research and I found that the Bible is dependable. If you, haven't, if you weren't here for previous messages, go back and watch them. Because ultimately what makes the Bible the word of God is not just that it's true, it's what it says about Jesus. And in the past few messages, we've shown how Jesus is a historical person, and not just a historical person, but a miraculous person, and not just miraculous, but that he rose from the dead, and how this is historically a verifiable fact, more than just about any other historical figure we know about Jesus in a reliable, dependable way, without even referencing the Bible. And he claimed he was God, and then proved it, and he spoke of the Old Testament as the word of God, and then he said to his disciples that he would send his spirit to give them his words. So if someone who claims to be God and then proves it says the Bible is true, in my mind, that's a pretty good indicator right there. So briefly, briefly as I can, we're going to, I want to talk a little bit about what to do. If you're already there, yeah, the Bible's the word of God, what do I do with it? Or if you're getting there, or at some point you get there along the road, I wanted to talk about translation because we can accept that the Bible that we have or the, the copies that we have in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek are accurate, sure. Maybe they're the word of God, sure. But how do we, how do we know, how can we trust our translation into our languages? So first of all, I wanted to make this point that translation is not inherently flawed. Whenever Jesus quoted the Old Testament to the people he was preaching to, to the Jews of his day, he actually quoted um, from the Greek translation of the day because many of his listeners didn't understand ancient Hebrew. Uh, that was called the Septuagint, I believe, if I'm saying that correctly. But it was a, there was a team of Hebrew scholars who had translated the Hebrew scriptures into modern Greek, or their modern Greek. And Jesus quoted from that. So translation can be good. And so I'm going to talk very briefly about, with our translations, we have, in many cases, translations that were likewise put together by teams of extremely uh, educated people who were all checking each other to make sure that their work was good and that they weren't letting their own personal bias slip into it. Which, what does that sound like? It sounds like the teams of scribes who are copying it, right? So it makes sense. They're, they would be more trustworthy, a whole bunch of people doing it, rather than, say, one person doing it. Um, but two of the, the, I guess, the spectrum of guides in 
translating the Bible are what's known as word for word and thought for thought. I almost wrote word for word versus thought for thought, but that's, that's not really right. It's not that they're opposed, it's that it is a spectrum of understanding. Word for word would be if you took what words were in Hebrew and in Greek and translated them to English and left them on, pa on the page as they were. We would not be able to read it. Uh, the grammar is completely different. That just wouldn't work. But uh, translations that work more in the word for word are simply, they, they, they wrestle to put the words that were written into a better order for us under, to be able to understand them. Thought for thought translations, an example of it would be more like the New Living Translation, are the translators sat down and they said, okay, we think we know what they meant by this, and it's going to make it a little bit easier to understand if we translate the thought um, while being very careful about that translation. Uh, we, we, as English readers, um, or there's the Bible in practically every language on earth, whatever language you may uh, read it in, these are the two uh, main schools of thought in it. And to kind of help visualize this, I'm going to put up, put up a graph here. I don't know if this is going to be visible, but on this side you have word for word. As an example, you have the NASB, the Amplified, and the ESV, and a little bit you have the KJV. So those are the more popular ones. You have the NIV right about in the middle, which is what we use as a church. And then past that, you have the New Living Translation and the Common English Version. And then on the far, far right, you have the message. So basically what this graph is saying is if you want something a, a little bit more accurate, probably a little bit harder to understand, go with something like the NASB, the ESV, um, and something very understandable, but under, you know, at the same time understanding it is somewhat interpreted, or somewhat more interpreted, I should say, the New Living Translation or the Common English Version. Now the reason why as a church we go with the NIV is because it is put together by many, many people checking each other's work, but it has a very, very good balance of the accuracy of word for word and then the, the, the interpretation involved in thought for thought. So, Primary translation. I wanted to talk very, very briefly about this. Because the fact is that some translations of the Bible are not very good. I'm not an expert. I don't know the original languages, but I have done a lot of research. And it turns out, like with the scribes, the teams of scribes copying people, or copying the copies, the more accurate translations are those that are done by teams of people keeping each other's biases in check. Some of the not so great translations are done by one person with an agenda. Even if their agenda or their motivation was good, they didn't have anybody cross-checking their work. So, go back to this graph. In my non-expert but studied opinion, I would avoid going past the NIV on the right for your primary translation. What I mean by that is this is the Bible that you study. This is the Bible that you go to when you need the truth of God in your life. Anything past that, the New Living Translation was also put together by teams of scholars. The Common English Version was put together by people keeping each other in check. That's all good. But understand that the level of interpretation required in that can create a certain opinion in our minds of what we think it means. So it's very important to have one of the more accurate ones 
And the, like I said, the NIV is, is great. It's a good balance. And if you have a hard time understanding it, you can use one of the others as a helper, but try and spend prayer, time, thought into understanding the word of God in, in, in one of its maybe less interpreted um, translations. I would frankly avoid the message um, because the message is put together by one guy. There's another one that's very popular nowadays called the Passion Translation, likewise put together by one guy. Both of them, I believe, had very good motives behind what they did, but they didn't have anybody to cross-check their work. In fact, the message guy said, this is not the Bible. This is a uh, paraphrase. This is to help understand the Bible, but try not to use it as your primary Bible. That's just for your information. So what do we do with that? Studying the Bible, understanding the Bible, often ends up with us asking the question, what does this mean to me? The Bible means something, and it was meant to mean something to the people it was written to. We don't decide what the Bible means. It doesn't matter what we feel it means to us. What matters is what it means and how it applies to us. And those are two different questions. What does it mean to me, and what is it, how does it apply to me? And then it's, important, it's an important attitude because a lot of times we can come to the Bible with our preconceived notions, but the Bible is here to train us, to correct us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So this is what Paul said when he was writing to the church of Philippi. He said, in this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We've all said this. I feel like God is speaking to me. We have to check it with the word of God. Because if any of us thinks that we can live a life for God without regularly spending time in his word, then I promise you we're not actually living for God. Because just like anyone sitting down and copying the Bible for themselves or translating the Bible for themselves, if you don't have something to check your work, then you are going to put your own desires and your own thoughts into it. The Bible corrects us. It teaches us. And ultimately it reveals and it glorifies God. Band can start coming up. So I apologize if I've taken more of your time than I meant to, but this is such a big subject and I, I care so much about it because what the Bible is about is it, a, it is about the Savior that we need, about showing us that our hearts and our lives cannot do anything of eternal value without Jesus. It shows that Jesus it fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament, that he showed up, that he was the living, breathing word of God, God himself in human form, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, and that he rose again. And again, over the last few messages, we've shown that this is a historical fact. It's about as historical as you can get, even before referencing in the Bible. But then what the Bible says rings true in our hearts. And our response to it is, we can either accept it and accept Jesus as Lord, or we can reject him. 
but I hope that I've helped you understand a little bit, at least why I believe the Bible, and maybe it can help jumpstart you toward your own search. Because remember, questions are good if you follow through with them.